Well, good morning. It is nice to see some familiar faces and to have some others uh, come back to visit us. Uh, it's good to have uh, Ryan here. I always joke with Ryan uh, and tell him I'm glad that he's here because when he walks in, I'm not the ugliest guy in the room anymore. <laughs> uh, but he's younger and stronger than me, so I won't say anything else about that. I'll apologize later profusely for that and maybe see if I can get his grandmother to whip up some cookies for him and for me. <laughs> and we can laugh over that joke. Uh, but we're uh, glad that you're uh, here with us uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to do a little bit of a, a history lesson here. Uh, I don't know if any of you uh, recognize uh, this gentleman right here. Um, Lynn, he, I think he might have been in your graduating class a few years back. Uh, and I can only ascertain that because I know that he was born on October 21st, 1833 uh, in Sweden. Does anybody have an idea of who this is? Don't, don't shout out a name, but anybody have an idea of who this might be? Brad, you, do you know? Okay, okay. Let's see if we can, how about this, when he moved to Russia uh, when he was four years old uh, from Sweden, uh, and then uh, he studied chemistry in Paris uh, at the age of 18. I don't have the, the next uh, bit of information, but right after that he spent some time in the U.S., uh, but then uh, he moved back to Sweden and soon began experimenting with explosives. Any idea? I knew Sarah would be the first one to figure this out. Uh, when he was 29, a huge explosion in a factory. It was actually a factory that belonged to his family. Uh, there was an explosion in that factory. It killed five people, including his younger brother, Emil. And now does anybody have an idea of who this is? You're not going to recognize him probably by many of these facts. In 1867, he patented a mixture of nitroglycerin and an absorbent substance producing what uh, he has named dynamite. Does anybody know who this guy is? The one who invented dynamite. Now hang on here, there's about three people who I heard them say who this is, but for the rest of us, we don't know who he is based on this, but he invented dynamite, one of the most, uh, I'll, I'll say one of the most impactful <laughs> um, uh, inventions of the 19th century. But what was very unique about him was he's one of the few people who could actually say that he read his own obituary in which he was referred to as the merchant of death. He wasn't really an old man. Uh, he'd already lost one brother in the explosion, and his second brother died uh, a few years before his death. But when the newspaper writer got uh, uh, the information, he got confused. And instead of writing an obituary about his brother, he instead wrote an obituary for Alfred Nobel. And Alfred Nobel looked at his own obituary and he was heartbroken that the one thing that people would remember him by was the fact that he was the merchant of death. Now, 
That was an unfair statement to say the least because prior to that point, any type of explosives that were used were at best volatile. And by creating dynamite, he took nitroglycerin and he turned it into a very stable form. Powerful, yes, but stable, absolutely. And the result of that was that literally millions of people would have their lives saved ultimately because what dynamite was able to do and the fact that he was able to harness that power. However, when you have something as powerful that, it's not always used for good. And in that case, it was oftentimes used for evil. The result of that was that Alfred Nobel read his obituary and what an outsider saw was this was a person who had caused death. And his name is Alfred Nobel. By the way, he has an award named after him and that is what? The Nobel Peace Prize. In fact, if I had said... Tell me what you know about Alfred Nobel. You probably couldn't say, oh yeah, he was born in the 1800's in Switzerland. You probably wouldn't say, oh yeah, he's the one who took nitroglycerin and stabilized it and created dynamite. The one thing that you would probably say about Alfred Nobel is, oh yeah, he's the one who has the Peace Prize. And you might just say, he had to be a really peaceful guy. He had to be a peace-loving, peace-making person because they would name a prize after him called the Nobel Peace Prize. The fact is, is that he still was the one who created dynamite. And dynamite was still used to take the lives of thousands upon thousands of people. And yet, we don't remember Him for the dynamite. We remember Him for the Peace Prize. And why is that? After He died for real, this time, His obituary came out for a second time in 1896 uh, in Italy. After taxes... Uh, he gave a charitable donation uh, to start up a Nobel Peace Prize. The equivalent in today's dollars is about 250 million U.S. dollars. And this is why Alfred Nobel is known for being a person who was trying to encourage peaceful actions rather than hostile ones. In fact, most people won't say, oh yeah, Alfred Nobel, the one who invented dynamite. He completely changed his legacy. And I want you to know, you can do that too. And you need only a little more than a case of dynamite and $250 million. But if you've got that laying around, I've got something that just might work for you. Let's open your Bibles, if you will, to Jude. If you're not sure where Jude is, go to Revelation and then flip back a page. Uh, Jude is one of the shorter books uh, in the Bible. It's the fifth shortest 
uh, at only a few verses. I think it's 25 verses. Uh, in fact, there's not even uh, a full chapter. So when I refer uh, to Jude this morning, uh, when I refer to Jude this morning, I won't be talking about chapters. Uh, it is a short uh, book, but it actually is going to be quite powerful. And it's going to be going along the same lines as our good friend Alfred Nobel. But this morning, before we begin reading in Jude, I want to give you a little bit of background of what has taken place and what we know about this man named Jude. Uh, he was not named after the Beatles song. He came well before that. Uh, in fact, his name is probably not Jude. His name was most likely Judas. Uh, but for obvious reasons, that was a name that didn't gain a whole lot of popularity after the death of Jesus, uh, and so his name was shortened to Jude. As we open up this book, and we'll talk more about this in class, but we read the opening verse and it says that he is Jude and he is the brother of James. Well, we know who James is. We know that James is the brother of Jesus. And so that begs the question... Why in the world would he open up this book and his big brother is Jesus and instead he doesn't say, hey, I'm the brother of Jesus. Instead he says, I'm the brother of James. And I'm not going to tell you why he does that until we get to class. So you're going to have to hang on for that one. But he opens up as the brother of James. Uh, we read about him uh, in several different places in the Gospels as one of the brothers of Jesus. Uh, was he a believer in his big brother? No, he was not. Uh, he, he didn't believe some of the things that his brother was saying. In fact, at one time, he and his other brothers and his mother showed up and they were trying to shush him, saying, boy, you're making a lot of trouble for us. Why don't you just stop with this whole idea of you're the king, you're the anointed one act. But yet we read in Acts chapter 19 verse 5 that, that the brothers of Jesus, which would be Jude and his wife, went out as missionaries telling the rest of the world about who Jesus was. Well, Jude either is a devout believer in his brother or he's absolutely crazy and has terrible timing. Because if he wanted to get on the coattails of his big brother, he should have done it when Jesus was alive. When Jesus was gaining popularity. When Jesus was doing things that people couldn't explain. That would have been the time to say, yeah, that's my big brother. But after Jesus is sentenced to death by the Romans, after He has been crucified, after there's a story going around about whether or not Jesus was really the Messiah, or He was just this lunatic. After persecutions go out about if you follow Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, you will be persecuted. After all that, then He stands up and says, oh yeah, I believe Him now. So He either has really bad timing, or He's not really bright, or He really believes that His brother is the Messiah. As a result, he's going to write a letter possibly in the mid-70s. 
And he starts off this letter, it's supposed to be a letter of an encouragement, but as you read verse 3, you see he kind of takes a a diversion. He says, you know, I want to write this letter of encouragement, but I realize that there's some things going on that I need to warn you about. He's going to warn them about these, these ungodly people who have infiltrated the church and we believe that possibly the letter was written while it was written to a, a large group. It would have been written uh, more specifically to a Gentile audience. Possibly that was meeting in Ephesus. If it was in fact delivered to Ephesus, that was not the, the final stopping place of it. It was intended to be a general letter that was being passed around. And he says, watch out for these ungodly people. And he is just going to rail on them. He's going to refer to them uh, as uh, the sons of, uh, or uh, as Korah, as Balaam, as Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the devil, and says, "You watch out for these people." And he says, "They're going to be judged." He lists. Here's what they're doing, and here's how you notice who they are, and here's what you need to do. And in just short 25 verses, he tries to warn them. But then in the last few, he does something so amazing. And I really love this. Before he gets to that point though, he refers to these people as wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Now that's pretty poetic, but it's also very damning. He's saying this is what these people have in store for them. And he says, here's how you handle this. He says, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. I love the analogy that he's using of of, of reaching out and pulling people from being burned. How is this possible? In the midst of of this corrupt generation back then, and the corrupt generation that we live in now, how can we do this? How is it possible? He's suggesting that we go out and we can save other people. I I think he's saying, hey, but, but we can also save ourselves. How can that actually happen? Because there's a power. A power that we can't contain. It's a power that we sometimes forget. We oftentimes overlook it. And many more times we underestimate it. It's the power that Jesus gives to change lives. Listen to this as we get to the end of his letter. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only 
God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forever. Amen. This is how he closes it out, but I don't know that you caught that. Did you catch what he said? Do you know how you're going to stand before God? You know, when he's talking about these people, these ungodly people in Ephesus, he says they're going to stand before judgment for what they have done. Are you afraid of judgment? Did you grow up like I did, always being afraid of of what might happen? Maybe I'm I'm not quite good enough. Maybe I, I didn't make the cut. Maybe if God really knew about the things that I said or even the things that I thought, maybe if I didn't ask for forgiveness for that one thing that I did, or maybe He knows that I can't be forgiven of that thing. Have you thought that? Have you been so silly as to think that if your last words, your dying breath, if you didn't mutter, God, please forgive me, then there's no way that you can be saved? Have you lived with that fear, with that anxiety, with the thought that just maybe it didn't quite work? Maybe I'm going to get there and as the angel is reading out the list of things that I've done, all of a sudden, God's going to say, I am tired of listening to this. It's just, it's too much. Maybe you're thinking that God is going to remember you and judge you based on your worst moments. Then there's no way there's salvation. Maybe you're the one who can't stand up and say, I absolutely believe I have salvation in Jesus Christ. Maybe you say, oh, I hope I'm there. We even make a little joke about it, don't we? Oh, if I can just get to the basement of heaven, I'll sweep the floors and take out the trash. What we're really saying is, I'm not absolutely sure that I'm good enough. Because I know who I am, and I know what I've done, and I can't get there. Am I the only one who thinks that? Am I the only one who's wrestled with this idea of of what if God really starts listing all those things that I've done? There's no way. But did you catch what Jude said? I want you to hear this, maybe if you've never heard it before, and maybe you have, but you've never applied it to yourself. To Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Did you get that, Michael Cheney? You are going to be presented before God without fault. Can you believe that? Kenneth Taylor. They're not even going to talk about the fact that you're not a Cowboys fan. That should be at the top of the list. But it's not going to make it. Because you are going to be presented before God without fault. Jennifer Crum. Jennifer Tyner Crum. You made a terrible decision 20 years ago. And you've been paying for it ever since. 
But I want you to know that as much as I love you and as perfect as I think you are, when you stand before God, it's going to be Jesus who says, this is my daughter. And you will be presented before God without fault. Why? Without fault. You understand this? Brad, this changes everything, doesn't it? Lance, you, you are going to be presented before God with all the things that they can talk about. This applies for everybody in here who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. That He says that you come before God and Jesus is going to say, you belong to me, Larry. And you're going to say, God, here He is. He's without fault. Gay Northcutt. You're just nearly perfect as you are. But somewhere, someday, you made even the tiniest mistake. And that little mistake would keep you before God. But Jesus is going to bring you up and say, this is my daughter Gay, and she is without fault. And it's not because you've done anything great or amazing or you've earned it. It's because Jesus says, you are mine, I am in you, and you are in me, and all your sins, I took them, I carried them, I took them on the cross, and now, when I look at you, what I see is someone without fault. That's who we are. We don't have to walk around wondering and guessing. Because of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice, every one of you will stand before God without fault. Doesn't that just make you want to sigh? Just, just to have a little... Oh, thank God. Thank God. Thank God that we're going to stand before Him Faultless. Almost 200 years ago, there was a man who was born. And he was intelligent. And he was inventive. And he was thoughtful. And through his actions, he invented dynamite. Dynamite that literally changed the world. But people don't remember him for his invention. His legacy was changed. And yours can be too. One more small note before we have our invitation song. I, I love this thought. As Alfred Nobel was looking at his invention and thinking about what he was going to call it, he thought, what can I do? What word can I use that would describe exactly what this is and the power that it has? 
Paul says this in Romans 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation. Alfred Nobel was trying to find a way to describe this powerful invention that he had. And he looks to the Greek and he uses the same word that Paul uses to describe the power that God has to offer us salvation. This word, dunamos. This dynamite. We didn't invent dynamite. And we're probably not walking around with $250 million, but that's not how our lives are changed. It's changed because of the Gospel of Jesus Christ who says, I died for you, I was buried for you, I rose, and now you can rise with me. We have power, church. Let us rise today. Let us rise and go out into our communities. Let us rise and stand up for our faith. Let us rise and teach our family. And let us rise as we stand and sing the song of encouragement.